ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I think we've been kicking it on all, all cylinders this week. David French has a fantastic piece in his For Members Only uh, newsletter from yesterday explaining the Supreme Court stuff in Texas, this, this Roe v. Wade, you know, being overruled hysteria. Um, that alone, I think, is probably worth the price of the subscription for a month. Um, and, uh, you should, uh, subscribe for all sorts of other reasons, including my own meager contributions. So if you can become a member, that would be wonderful. Um, and, uh, uh, let's get started with the, the talking stuff with words. Um, why don't we, I, why don't we start with the Texas thing? Uh, so as listeners, I think, no, I'm okay. I, I think Roe v. Wade should be overturned. Um, I'm okay with various states having the power to regulate abortion in various ways. I think it would be better for America if we had, had, had sent the abortion issue to the states from the beginning. Um, and, you know, I'm not alone in this. This is like even, as people you know love to point out, this is, was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's position, was that, the that row was so sweeping and kind of short circuited, um, a uh, um, a natural democratic process that probably would not have ended up where rabid pro choicers are, nor would it have ended up where rabid pro lifers are. And I use rabid advisedly; I just mean like hardcore. Um, uh, it probably would have ended up where the American people have consistently been for a very, very, very long time which is that they are basically pro-choice um, up through like the first trimester. And then they become more and more uh, supportive or tolerant of restrictions as you move later in a pregnancy. This is how laws in a lot of countries work. It's how I think we, it's where we would have ended up for the most part with probably some outlier states. There are lots of pro-lifers who think that would have been terrible and they would have made arguments to that effect. And, and again, I don't want to belabor my own position on abortion, but you've, I've talked about it a bunch of times. Um, but I think that one of the things as a matter of sort of political analysis from a 30,000 foot level uh, that gets left out of that is that there would be a lot fewer hardcore, passionate pro-lifers in America had it not been for Roe. Roe was a you know, uh, a galvanizing thing that created in effect the pro-life movement. And, um, whether you agree with the pro-life movement or disagree with the pro-life movement, it was basic. It, that's not my point here. My point here is that there are a lot of people who today, if you reached the compromise that we would have reached in 1970, in 1973, 1974, whatever, um, that sort of compromise of, of restrictions for the first trimester and then more strict as you move on there would still be um pro-life objections to that but there wouldn't be the pro-life movement that there is today um precisely because roe created the pro-life movement um and i think that's one of the and that i think was in many ways what ginsburg's real point was was that it it it, it was it's so overreached it's so short-circuited the process that it invited that kind of backlash. And now, you know, that compromise is going to be more difficult precisely because pro-lifers are much more locked into an absolutist position. Again, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean, I think that's true. I mean, if, if you have large numbers of people who are pro-life, even for rape and incest, which I'm not, uh, um, but you have people who are absolutely pro-life for everything except maybe rape and incest, and you have a lot more of them than you otherwise would have, it becomes more difficult to reach a compromise. And similarly, like, I don't think people realize how much more extreme on abortion the left has gotten over the last 30 years. Um, you know, we have the, every now and then we have these huge controversies that happened in Virginia a couple of years ago where, um, people were, you know, literally arguing to legalize, um, what everyone 
would have recognized as infanticide 50 years ago, you know, a baby outside of the mother still being killed. And, um, you know, you had that famous line from Barbara Boxer when she had a colloquy with Rick Santorum where she said, you know, it's, it's, uh, not a baby until you bring it home from the hospital. Um, that kind of talk was, you know, not in the cards in 19, in 1973 or 75, whenever Roe was passed, it was not a, um, that was not a part of the same conversation. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I think getting rid of Roe, first of all, I think it's constitutional, it's a constitutional mess. But one of the reasons I think getting rid of Roe makes sense is that by sending it back to the states, you allow people to come out, work out where the voters actually are on these things. And my assumption is, is that the voters are way to the right of where the activists on the left are, and they're way to the left of where the activists on the right are. Um, but at least that debate would have some, you know, would not be short-circuited by the Supreme Court. All right, so anyway, want to get rid of Roe, but I think the Texas law, from, from, you know, what I've seen of it, you know, from talking to David, from reading David's newsletter, I haven't listened to the latest episode of Advisory Opinions, which is our fantastic niche legal podcast. Um, but apparently they go even further into the weeds in it. Um, but from talking to Sarah, from talking to David, from doing my own reading on it, um, I basically really don't like the Texas law. And, um, I saw over at NR, there were some people celebrating how wonderful it is. Uh, I just, I'm not convinced. Um, I also think that the, the, the media and the, liberal overreaction to it is way over the top. You know, you had Hillary Clinton tweeting that, you know, simply by not taking the case, um, which is what the Supreme court did. Uh, the court has effectively gutted Roe v. Wade. It, it didn't. I mean, if you actually read from the opinion, what they're actually saying is they're basically saying we need time to figure out how to deal with this law because it's, it's so cleverly done, and I don't mean that as praise, that it's difficult to figure out who has standing, and no one brought a proper lawsuit to the court for it to look at. And so they, they basically, for procedural grounds, said, come back to us when you have a case where we can decide it on the merits. And they explicitly say there's nothing in this decision that weighs in on the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of what Texas is doing. It's just that you got to go through the right motions. And as David points out, the one of the reasons why it, it, this happened is that the way the law was written, um, which we'll get to in a second, uh, kind of caught pro-choice, you know, the pro-choice legal community um, or the abortion rights legal community, whatever you want to call it, uh, off guard and what they should have done is they should have gotten someone to do a quote-unquote friendly lawsuit um, really early to create a test case so they could get it to the court instead what they tried to do was um you know sue essentially one state judge and i think one other person and the court was like well these are not people that you can under the law sue to overturn a law that they're not doing anything with yet, right? I mean, it gets all technical, but I think you get the point. And so the what, what separates this law out from the, what is it, the Dobbs one, which I guess was Mississippi, um, is that it's, it's really like a way to throw chaff into the air or, you know, um, pebbles into the machinery kind of thing of how abortion is done in Texas. And what it does is essentially allow private citizens uh, to sue um, abortion providers uh, basically as, as private entities and, and sue anybody who enables or um, um, abets the, you know, an abortion. And at least that's how I understand it. And it's, I, I, I look, I, I, Joanne, Joanne Reed at MSNBC is talking about how Texas is now like a Soviet republic um, with its own Stasi and all these kinds of things. It's, of course, ridiculous. And it's also kind of fun to hear how hear the left now complain about Soviet republics being bad. But um, 
there's a point there. Like, I don't like the idea of turning people into uh, essentially vigilante enforcers of the law like this and creating, you know, creating literally bounties for these kinds of lawsuits. Um, and I don't, I don't like it on the merits about abortion. I don't think it's, uh, I suspect it's not going to pass constitutional muster. Um, but, um, I also just really don't like it as a precedent because what you're doing is you're, you know, I mean, like, if it's good enough for abortion, it's going to be good enough for guns. It's going to be good enough for all sorts of weird kind of like title ninety kind of things. And, um, basically setting up a system of cash rewards for nuisance lawsuits to pester people and creating incentives for people to sort of rat out loved ones who do something that, uh, you know, the one orthodoxy or another doesn't like just doesn't seem to me to be the way to deal with the abortion issue in this country. It seems like a great way to make people even angrier at each other. Um, and, uh, so I don't like it. I think the Dobbs, from what I've read of the Dobbs case, that's just a much more straightforward, here's why we think Roe is unconstitutional. Here's why we think these restrictions make sense. And, um, uh, and I think that's the way to properly do it. I don't think that this thing actually, even if it was, um, I, I just don't think it's, it's, it's not the way, it's not going to take out Roe for sure. And, you know, and Matt Cotinetti makes a very good point today is that politically, I mean, again, that's not the main reason why you should gauge any of these things, but it's certainly it's not for me, given what low regard I have for the GOP these days. Uh, but it does seem like bad political tactics for the GOP right now, because you have um, Biden seriously on the ropes for the Afghanistan stuff. The economy is sputtering. Um, you know, we got the jobs report about 20 minutes ago and it was supposed to be, I don't know, like 750,000 and instead it was like 250,000. Um, whatever the reality of how we're dealing with COVID at the present moment, the perception out there is that Biden is not handling it well. He's lost. He, I think I saw somewhere 25% of independence or he's down to 25% of independence, something like that. He's definitely cratering among independents. His, his approval is doing terribly and this kind of too clever by half let's get everybody to inform on people having abortions law um just strikes me as as a bit of a lifeline uh for joe biden because it it it's going to turn off a lot of independence it's not going to end up overturning roe v wade but it gives it certainly gives democrats something to raise a crap ton of money on so again, I just, I don't like it. I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's smart. I don't think it's nearly as clever as people think it is. Um, and there are, there are better and more serious ways to take on, um, bro. Okay. So where else am I going with this? Uh, all right. Since I mentioned Biden, I, I talked about this briefly on special report last night. Um, you know, it's, it's really very interesting. I've never really thought Biden was a person of much conviction. Um, he, always, you know, it's funny. At one point, I remember reading an interview where Hillary or a profile where Hillary Clinton said that um, Joe Biden could be uh, Bill Clinton's long lost brother. They were so similar in so many ways. And Hillary obviously meant this as a compliment. But, you know, I don't think it necessarily is because, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was not particularly a man of conviction either. Um, and they both have this real problem with telling the truth and inventing stories about things um, from their past. And yeah, so does Donald Trump, but I think it's from a different part of the brain. Um, and, um, but anyway, you know, so I, I, I've never thought like he was a particularly like convicted politician. He always seemed like um, a guy who was triangulating again, not between Republicans and Democrats, but between conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats. He wasn't a centrist. He was a centrist within the context, within the context of the Democratic Party. But um, it's really becoming clear that one of the few things that he really believes 
passionately is that, and it's a weird thing to have a passionate opinion about is that it's okay politically and morally to abandon allies at the end of a war, um, you know, and to reject refugees. There are these terrible quotes, you know, where he just, uh, wants to abandon, you know, he was like, didn't want to take in any Vietnamese boat people, didn't think we had any obligation to do it. Um, in Richard Holbrook's, uh, um, diary, he's got this passage where he talks about how Biden just wanted a plane cut and run in 2012 from Afghanistan for almost entirely political reasons. Um, um, and he says, so this is Holbrook writing, Joe took the position plain and simple that we have to get out of Afghanistan. I reminded him that the president and Hillary, and indeed, I think Joe himself had talked about a residual presence like Iraq, which he said he'd been working on most of the last year that we would need a congressional appropriations to train the army and the police and give economic assistance. We wouldn't get any of that if women were sent back to the black years of the, and the dark ages. He said, it ain't going to happen. He said, I don't understand politics. He said, we're facing a debacle politically. He said, we're going to lose the presidency in 2012 if unemployment remains high. And Afghanistan was the other issue that could pull us down. And we have to be on our way out that we, that we had to do it, that we had to do what we did in Vietnam. And again, more Holbrook, who says, this shocked me. And I commented immediately that I thought we had a certain obligation to the people who had trusted us. He said, F that, saying it out fully. Uh, he said, F that, we don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon, Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. I said, but there are larger strategic consequences here. And he said, what are they? And I tried to outline them. Outline them. He clearly thought I was mouthing some kind of right-wing crap, and it got quite intense. Um, now I think that's, you know, interesting. And and as as uh, Damir Marusik, who wrote a column about this a while back in the Examiner, you know, he points out that like one of the main sources of consistency in Biden's life is how he has this gut instinct about where voters are on a foreign policy issue. And that should determine what our foreign policy is. And I think he's right retrospectively that that's, I think Demir is right uh, retrospectively about that's how Biden approaches a lot of foreign policy stuff. The amazing thing is that his political instincts are so spectacularly bad. Uh, I mean, regardless of where you come down on the actual merits of the policy stuff with Afghanistan, Biden's reading of the room as it were has been off for the last eight weeks you know when he, he when he should have been angry he was sorrowful when he should have been humble he was uh arrogant um he's been acting in bad faith turns out he's been lying about a lot of stuff but again that's a substantive point i'm just meaning that it was um that that his read of the politics of all of this has been terribly terribly off and because his read of the politics of it has been so bad, it, the policy has been derivative of that misjudgment. And so he thinks it just doesn't matter that we're screwing up the departure and leaving all these people behind. And I got to tell you, I am legitimately furious about the lies about all these numbers. I, if you've been following me on Twitter, um, I have been very skeptical about these um, numbers that the administration has been offering from the get go about how many Americans are there, how many Americans are left um, at the very least. And I've been very angry at the media, including, you know, a lot of conservative outlets who have just taken the administration's claims about what the numbers are at face value to the point where they don't even say, you know, there are only a hundred Americans left according to the administration. Um, or there are a range of a hundred to 250 Americans left in Afghanistan. According to the Pentagon, they just say there are, only 100 to 250 Americans left full stop as if this is an established fact like you know the location of Mount Rushmore or you know the time the sun sets um on a specific day and it's by no means why would we trust the numbers coming out of this administration and now it turns out that you know and I went back and looked through some of Biden's stuff he at the very least is guilty of lying by omission 
when he he left the impression with people, including in his big August 31st speech, that the bulk of these people being pulled out of Afghanistan on these flights were, in fact, our Afghan allies, the SIVs and all that. And now if the NBC numbers are to be believed, if these various leaks that hit Politico and other places are to be believed, and I don't, I'm not sure why I shouldn't believe them, or I'm not sure why should I be any more skeptical of them than I am of the administration's numbers, it turns out that a tiny, tiny fraction of uh, the Afghans that we got out were actually the interpreters and the special immigration visa people that, that we were most obliged to get out. And it's pretty, it's becoming pretty clear, or it seems to be becoming pretty clear that a big chunk of the people on those flights weren't even Afghans at all, but they were other foreign nationals, you know, from NATO allied countries and whatnot that um, hitched a ride with the U.S. Now, I want to be really clear. I got no problem with that. Like, we should get French people and English people and Dutch people and anybody, you know, along those lines that, you know, were part of the coalition in Afghanistan. We, I don't even have a problem with prioritizing them, you know, and I, or at least that's a perfectly legitimate debate to have. We have, you know, we have almost a unique capability to do these kinds of airlift kind of things because we have that much capacity and our NATO allies often rely on us for that capacity. And so like, you know, this is a point David was making on the dispatch podcast. And so if that's in fact the case that most of these guys were from like, you know, NATO ally countries or a big chunk of them, that alone doesn't bother me. What does bother me is the boasting of how heroic this was as an airlift, you know, to get Afghans out who are going to be murdered and it turns out that we didn't get nearly as many as they led us to believe. And that that outrages me. You know, just the dishonesty outrages me. Now, I don't want to belabor all that, but the reason I bring it up, and this is the point I was trying to get to, is that for Biden, in his head, and for a lot of pundits, including me from time to time, the 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 apt comparison here has been to the fall of Saigon. You know, it's not freaking Dunkirk, you know, don't get me wrong. Digital Dunkirk, those guys, those volunteers who are doing that stuff, total badass heroes. God bless them. Um, they're trying to make it Dunkirk. They're doing the effort to make it Dunkirk. But like if I hear an administration supporter, you know, say, you know, saying this is like, you know, that Biden deserves a Churchillian attaboy because this has been like Dunkirk. I'm going to lose my whatever. Um the people running digital Dunkirk do not think this is Dunkirk precisely because um, they're mad at the Biden administration for not doing more and forcing these people to step up. So um, enough of that. But the Saigon analogy, for all sorts of obvious reasons, has seemed pretty apt for a while, um, even though, as we noted in our editorial, there were some real flaws in it. You know, the Saigon government didn't fall for another two years after we pulled U.S. troops out. but. You know, for Biden, as he was saying, and apparently in this conversation um, uh, with Richard Holbrook, he thinks that the American people give in an unpopular war, they give you a pass for um, throwing, you know, allies uh, and, and refugees under the bus. You know, Nixon and Kissinger did it. We can do it, too. Um, and he may be right about that, which depresses me, which is, you know, not a great thing. Um, about the American people um, and about American politics. Uh, but there might be some truth to that. Um, I certainly think if Biden can successful, could su successfully change the subject to something more beneficial to him, like, I don't know, the Texas abortion law, um, uh, they could get the media climate to treat it like the fall of Saigon so long as, like, say, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban don't turn this into even more of a disaster by, you know, launching terrorist attacks or doing mass executions or whatever. But that's not my point. The point is, is that, um, this, if, if, if it's like Saigon, Biden kind of could come out of this. Okay. Not in the history books, but politically, you know, going into 2024, um, you know, that kind of thing. But 
part of the problem is is that we don't know how many Americans and and never mind SIVs um are still trapped in Afghanistan. And you know, we can't get a number about we can't even get an answer. You know, Brett was talking about this yesterday. We can't even get an answer of if anybody has gotten out since the last American flights um, left Afghanistan. I mean, has anybody, everyone talks about how, you know, they, they're still free to leave. Okay, well, has anybody left? And the administration won't answer. State Department won't answer. The, 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 the Defense Department won't answer. Regardless, there's very good reason to believe that there were a good number of Americans left there. And, and that means if they don't leave soon, there's a very high possibility that we have a, a hostage situation on our hands and that suggests not the fall of saigon but the takeover of the u.s embassy in iran and that really was devastating for the carter presidency and and you know and biden's looking very carter-esque these days um so i don't know i mean again i don't like the scoring of all this on these political grounds but you know, it's, 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 it's the life I have chosen. And, um, and I still remain appalled by all of this, but I don't know what I'm writing the G file about today, but I will not be doing more Afghanistan. It's not because I don't care. It's just, I've written a lot about Afghanistan over the last three weeks or so. Um, so what else? Um, oh, so, uh, you know, one of these things I've been thinking about just to change gears again, um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, and I, I've talked about this a bunch before about how, you know, I try to like take a step back outside of the context of our, you know, um, sort of tribal, my team versus your team stuff. And, you know, I usually make that point about how, you know, if you were a visitor from 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, the, you would not only understand what North Korea is as a divine right monarchy, but you be closer to the truth than what most political scientists want to talk about when it comes to North Korea. Um, there are certain human, there are certain forms that just sort of come back, um, that reassert themselves because we're human beings and we give them different names and we give them different, um, uh, you know, ideological explanations, but the underlying impulses are, are, are the same as they were, you know, a thousand or 10,000 years ago. Um, and this was one of the points I was trying to get at with my conversation with Graham Wood, which I thought was great. Um, I really had a good time talking to him. I'm a big fan of his writing. Um, and I learned a bunch of things, but, um, you know, the, the tendency of sort of, of tribes to protect their own, to form guilds, to form, you know, to protect themselves against innovation, all these kinds of things, big themes of suicide of the West. Um, these are true to sort of all ideological movements. They manifest themselves with, with sort of under different flags and under different arguments, but the underlying impulses are, are kind of the same. So I don't want to get too deep in the weeds and all that again, because I've, I've belabored that a lot, even though I think it's fascinating stuff. Um, but instead I want to get a little closer to the reality in, in, in the sense that um, the difference, you know, the way we talk about left and right these days is we make it sound like it's, obvious that this position is a left-wing position and that position is a right-wing position and you know it always depends on how you define your terms um you know i was i could not have been more clear when i wrote liberal fascism that i was operating um on a set of defined terms where i defined conservatism is basically two pillars um the sort of social and cultural kind of conservatism traditional values traditional orthodoxy um religious devotion um tradition all that stuff and then the other pillar was classical liberalism free markets free minds limited government all that stuff and for my entire life growing up those things were considered right wing right i mean that's why you know in in politics reagan was considered a crazy right wing ideologue because he wanted low taxes and small government and and all that kind of thing plus he was like a traditional christian you know super scary that was like that was right wing for me growing up 
Um, you know, uh, uh, Paul Ryan wanted to, you know, trim Medicare spending and that made him an evil right wing ideologue who wanted to throw old people over cliffs. Um, you know, I think that most people understand what I'm talking about here. Right. But that was in the Anglo American context of right and left. And, um, and I, I should say it was really in the modern Anglo American context of right and left. But if you read your Hayek, you know, you know that in fact, um, you know, the classical liberal pillar, the one about free markets and free trade and limited government and, 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 and sort of economic subsidiarity and allowing prices to work their magic, all that kind of stuff. That's an idea that began on the left. That was a left wing idea in France um, and on, in continental Europe. It was um, um, deeply, deeply corrosive to the rule of, you know, altar and throne of, of you know, of, of church and monarchy and all that kind of thing. And it was only when socialism bubbled up that all of a sudden uh, classical liberalism, let's call it libertarianism for the purposes of this, even though there are, there are real differences between classical liberalism and libertarianism as we understand it today, but it's just easier to explain this because the terms don't confuse people as much. Um, uh, libertarianism becomes a right wing thing because the socialists controlled the commanding heights of the intellectual left. And, um, um, and so you have all of a sudden the definition of the, this spectrum in the West, particularly in America, the neoliberals, you know, the libertarians become considered right wing, um, even though they hadn't really changed their arguments or their positions because socialism came to define left wing. Now, I would argue that socialism has a lot more to do, has a lot more in common with the pre enlightenment economies of, of, of Europe. And it was, it was a, it was an attempt. It was essentially a reactionary phenomenon. Um, to restore a lot of that sense of security and social solidarity and organic wholeness and oneness that um, people got from you know the old feudal systems and the old divine right of king systems, but to gussy it up in the new language of science and technocracy and um, you know economics and all of these kinds of things. Um, but it became, you know, and, and I make the exact same argument about fascism and Nazism and all, all that stuff. The, they were all, they all rejected libertarianism, classical liberalism. Um, if you have to be, if it has to be explained to you that, that Nazis and communists didn't like libertarianism, um, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast to begin with. And so, um, you know, what we define as right wing and left wing has to do with a certain kind of quite partisan, but sort of contextual scorecard that can be confusing over time. Um, you know, I mean, we're told that, you know, left-wingers dislike authoritarianism and because obviously they're anti-fascist and all that kind of stuff, but they love, they loved, I mean, I'm not saying they do right now, I'm not saying they all do anyway, but it's just an objective fact that lots of left-wingers really like Fidel Castro. When I mean, and as I argue in my book, there's very, it's a very difficult case to make that Fidel Castro wasn't fascist. If you go by the, the normal checklists of what, def, what describes, you know, fascist, he was an authoritarian dictator. He wrapped himself in a, in the mantle of the military. I mean, he wore a military uniform most of the time. Um, he was, uh, he claimed to be the authentic voice of the real people uh, he took, he nationalized all sorts of industries and put them under the corrupt yoke of his sort of party elite. Um, he talked about national independence in the same way that, um, and national liberation, the same way Mussolini had, I mean, you can go down a very long checklist and I'm not by any means the first person to point any of this stuff out. Um, and so anyway, I've been thinking about this because I've been, I want, I've been wanting to write about isolationism. And one of my biggest peeves is the way in which isolationism is entirely an American phenomenon. It is an American tradition that has existed 
in ample measure across the ideological and partisan spectrum. Um, I can do chapter and verse on this, but um, there have been deep-seated strains of isolationism within liberal, within progressivism, within Democratic Party, and there have been, I would actually argue, less deep and convicted strains of isolationism within the Republican Party, with the exception of a few moments in American history, like particularly 1939 to 1941. But for the most part, isolationism was transpartisan, nonpartisan, bipartisan, whatever you want to call it, or it was predominantly a um, a progressive left, um, you know, liberal phenomenon. And but for reasons that I can't get hugely into right here, it's been very, very, very frustrating how the left. That, that somehow the, 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 the media, historians, whatever, almost always reserve the word isolationism for right-wingers and say, oh, this is a major strain within you know, the, the American right going back, blah, 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 blah. And they almost never use the, the, the term for left-wingers. And you know, you know, here you have Joe Biden talking about how this spells the end of um, using the military to change nations to our liking or whatever that line was. That was, you know, I'm not saying he's wrong or right. I'm not saying he doesn't have an argument. That's a totally different thing. But just objectively speaking, that was one of the most isolationist ideas or speeches or statements by a president um, we've had. Trump had a lot of isolationist stuff too, but we know that. And it's, you're allowed to call Trump an isolationist, even though he had no idea what America first was when he adopted the signature slogan of American isolationist. But Biden's supposed to be the internationalist and he still claims to be the internationalist. And you can go back to all the talk about wanting to pull out of Iraq. You can go back to, you know, the McGovern come home America stuff. You can talk about all of the, you know, the rich tradition among um, certain parts of the Democratic Party to um, sort of uh, pull out of essentially the Cold War. Um, and again, I, I disagreed with them profoundly, but uh, it's my point here is just simply that, like, you can't throw isolationism into the definition of what defines left and right without um, dealing with the fact that it defines them both. And maybe I'll write it. I mean, I will write about this. I just don't know when, but I'll give you a different example. Cause I think this stuff is really interesting. Um, uh, where should I go? Okay. So there's a, a famous, very left-wing historian, Gabriel Kolko, who has written some really brilliant, wrote some really brilliant, fascinating, well-researched, you know, uh, histories, of the collusion of big business and big government starting in the progressive era. And, um, uh, you know, and he's the guy I learned, you know, I, I, so I first learned about Coco from, uh, my friend, Tim Carney in his much underrated book, the big ripoff. Um, and then I bought a bunch of Coco books and, you know, I read a bunch of them for a bunch of his stuff for my first book. And, um, Coco makes, you know, Coco's, I think his most famous book is called A Triumph of Conservatism. And at first blush, I was, it made me very angry because he was talking about the progressive era. But he works from a basically a Marxist definition of what constitutes conservatism. And it bothers me less when people define their terms. You know, if you, if you say, this is what I mean by conservatism, and therefore I think the progressives were conservative, I can talk to you about that because I know where you're coming from. But so many times what people want to do is just simply, use conservative or progressive because I mean, the people on the right do the very similar things as a pejorative to describe the stuff that they don't like. And anyway, so Coco points out, you know, time and time again, uh, that the, that big business, um, captured in sort of, you know, uh, regulatory capture kind of way, public choice theory kind of way. um, the U.S. government during the progressive era straight through the, the, the New Deal. And I, I can talk chapter and verse on this, too. Um, 
the 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 big businesses colluded starting during World War One, um, colluded with progressive government to basically rig the system to their benefit. And under FDR, this wasn't a bug, it was a feature. You know, the the uh, the cartels, the associations, all of these things. Uh, the way it worked was that, you know, if you're if your government you want to deal with the big stakeholders because that's the only way you can implement policy at scale, right? So you get the big stakeholders to sit around the table and then they kind of rig the system for the betterment of the big stakeholders. And this is the actual definition of what corporatism is, or I shouldn't say it's the actual definition. This gets closer to what corporatism really is. It's not rule by big business, which is what a lot of people want it to be um, or want to claim it is. It's actually a doctrine that comes out of the Catholic Church in the 19th century that says all of the big institutions, yes, some big businesses, but also labor unions, trade syndicates, the, and most of all, the Catholic Church, all the big state, the guilds, they should all sit around the table and decide how to organize society to the, for the betterment of everybody. But since they're around the table, it's very rare that they organize society in ways that aren't first and foremost to their benefit. And so you saw, you know, in the during the progressive era, you know, the head of U.S. Steel was very much in favor of. I mean, I, I think this is from a headline of the New York Times. I remember seeing, you know, head of U.S. Steel comes out in favor of socialization of industry. And you know what, what a lot of these guys want to do, and what I think Facebook kind of wants to do from time to time, is become too big to fail, too essential for economic and social policy that they basically become quasi-government entities and therefore they get locked in profits like a utility. And um, the weird thing, so anyway, I could go deep in, deep in this stuff. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with some of it, but um, I've written a lot about it and, and you can get good summaries of where I come down on a lot of the stuff in my underrated tyranny cliches um but the, the point i'm trying to get at is that um it's considered you know right wing to let businesses today right it's considered right wing to let businesses uh uh fail or succeed on their own merits without any government support and it's considered left wing to uh say that you know, corporations need to administer government policy by proxy, right? And um, the extreme libertarian or anarcho-capitalist or even classical liberal position would say, you know, hands off of big business. The modern sort of managerial class, corporatist, progressive point of view says, no, 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 these institutions, they need to be tightly regulated, not just economically, but in terms of their social policies, which is why like big corporations have massive HR departments that impose all sorts of cultural norms about, you know, everything from affirmative action to gender use, gender pronoun use and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not saying it's all bad, you know, or anything like that, but um, it's, you know, this idea that big corporations are right wing has been, was probably dumb during the age of Thomas Nast cartoons. But it's certainly dumb now. But we just carry this baggage with these associations that I think distract us from describing reality properly. And I'll give you a last example because, again, I, I could get really deep into the corporatism stuff and I probably shouldn't. Um, the Washington Post had a story today, yesterday, about how the pandemic set back women's progress in the workforce. And, you know, talked about how a lot of women, you know, went home to be primary caregivers at home for their kids or whatever. And, you know, and, I, and I'm sure it's all true. And, um, um, and part of the post's point is that it's going to take a long time for them to get back to where they were. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, here's the headline, how the pandemic set back women's progress in the global workforce. Now, um, you, 
could read that headline and think that was an utterly dispassionate, non-biased sort of headline. Um, or you could ask yourself, well, you know, how are we defining progress here? And again, look, I, look, I, I, my own view is, um, women who want to work should work for the same reasons that men who want to work should work. Um, people should have the freedom to figure out what they want to do, um, and figure out how to arrange their lives. And I'm, you know, again, not to name drop Tim Carney again, but you know, he makes a pretty passionate case. I think he's working on a book along these lines about how we should make it easier for men to be stay at home dads. And I think he's probably right. Um, you know, whether that's, I mean, we'll have to wait and see what the policy suggestions are there, but like, um, families are super important and figuring out ways to have more quality family time, um, I think is great. And, um, but it seems to me that, you know, this is one of these things that has always fascinated me about how we talk about women and feminism, where, uh, it is consistently sort of how we're a lot, so much of the rhetoric is, you know, don't judge women by male standards and that, 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 that the male paradigm is bad and that, um, you know, there's so much toxic masculinity and then so many of the metrics that define quote unquote women's progress are about how much they hew to essentially male, um, quote unquote male standards. I mean, you know, the feminists want more female action stars who go around murdering people and shooting people and, and, you know, that kind of thing and having, you know, wild hookups. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, that the, the measure of success for or progress for women is that they get more involved in traditionally male sports, you know, and again, I'm not against them being involved in sports or anything like that. I'm my point is, is that just the standards, you can't say that American history or Western history has been soaked with patriarchy and male chauvinism and all of these things. And and then say it's massive progress that that women are now op- you know welcome to these exact same you know roles and paradigms. Those are my dogs barking up there. I don't know if you can hear them. Um, you know the exact same roles and standards that we applied to men. You know, it's like and this is where I think like the, the sort of the paleo types, you know the 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 you know the Patrick Deneen types have you know, some good arguments is that, you know, if, if you think liberal democratic capitalism or corporate capitalism or late stage capitalism, whatever you want to call it with its emphasis on, on meritocracy and corporate, you know, uh, career track stuff is bad in and of itself saying, yay, women are just as, are becoming just as implicated in that system as men is a kind of a weird argument. And, um, I don't think the system that we've got is, is all that terrible. I mean, I think it's got serious problems and all that kind of stuff, but, um, you know, there used to be, you know, these arguments about difference feminists who really thought that being female was just, you know, that females were epistemologically different. They had different ways of knowing different ways of understanding and all that kind of stuff. And I had my problems with that stuff when I got, you know, indoctrinated with a lot of it in college. But it was interesting, and I think you know now we know that there's a lot of truth to it. And it's not me saying that women are inferior by any stretch of the imagination. Um, um, it's just me saying that you know maybe what we should do to measure women's progress is figure out how women could live the lives that they want to live, and maybe that's the way we measure progress in general. And if Women, because of COVID, because of the pandemic, have like read if if some some statistical fraction of women have discovered that being a full time mom for a while longer gives them more life satisfaction than punching a time card at a company. Why isn't that a victory for feminism? Why isn't that a victory for women's choices or whatnot? Why isn't that just a victory for human flourishing? And so again, look, I, again, I don't like, I don't want artificial barriers against women. I don't want artificial, you know, or arbitrary barriers against anybody. 
um, in the workforce, but letting people figure out how to design their own lives in ways that give them the most life satisfaction without condemning them for it seems to me a good idea. And I think it's really kind of funny how the sort of the, a lot of these metrics were for what defined sort of uh, feminist or left wing progress um, on the left. If you were a Gabriel Colco type or, you know, a Christopher Lash, for that matter, looking at some of this stuff objectively, you would say, my God, you know, we've defined success for women to make them, you know, cogs in the same capitalist um, corporate machinery that men are, you know, how is that progress? And I think it's a good question to ask. Um, all right. So enough of all that. Um, I'm sure I pissed off somebody. So I got a lot of react. It's, it, it's interesting to me. I, I mean, again, I really like the Graham Wood conversation and I've gotten very little reaction to it so far. Um, I personally enjoyed my conversation with Peter Suderman, but I got a lot of, uh, let's just say intense reaction to it. Some people had some real profound problems with, with, with Peter. Um, some people had some pretty profound problems with me, but it was the reactions to it, you know, kind of took me by surprise. Um, uh, he did not, I should say, persuade me about the nature of time, nor did he persuade me that I really need to go listen to a Kanye album anytime soon. Um, but I will just, partly out of honesty and partly out of a desire to annoy people tell you that I really do like the, the new Applebee's theme song. I think it's just real catchy. Um, anyway, um, um, I did love this, uh, Ron Johnson video. And I might write about this today where some sort of, uh, some left-wing reporter who kind of does a Project Veritas kind of thing, um, pretending to be like a MAGA person, that kind of thing, talking to politicians, uh, talked to Ron Johnson. And, uh, you know, Johnson, who has bent over backwards to the point where I would argue he risked uh, uh, cranial rectal impaction, um, to sound like he's at least anti-anti January 6th mob um, and to sound like he's all in for the, the sort of the, at least the soft Trump interpretation of those events and so many other things. Uh, when caught, you know, away from television cameras, at least away when he thought he wasn't in front of television cameras, you know, outed himself as actually being quite sane. And saying how the Wisconsin election wasn't stolen, he makes precisely the point many of us, including like many Democrats, have made, which is that if you were going to go to such lengths to steal the election, you wouldn't just steal it for Joe Biden. You might steal it for senators and congressmen too. Um, and uh, I think it's—I just think it's hilarious because it's confirmation. First of all, it's just confirmation of like this point I've been making forever about how one of the things in this era that drives me the most crazy is how um, many Republicans are closeted normals where they don't want to admit that they think so much of this Trump stuff is garbage and that so much of the Steve Bannon stuff is pernicious and dangerous because the problem is, is that Republicans are basically afraid, afraid of a big chunk of their primary voters and they don't want to get on the wrong side and they're afraid of the Fox News audience never mind the OAN and Newsmax audience, and they're increasingly dependent on small uh, online contributions. And so offending, you know, uh, you know, independents and sane conservatives is less important to them, is, 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 is less of a problem for them than offending, you know, these small donors who want to hear how, you know, the, the, the Chai Coms and the North Koreans stole the election along with our precious bodily fluids. And but you get him away from a camera and there's Ron Johnson talking sense. And I can't wait to see how he compensates for the fact that he's been talking sense um, because he's going to have to, I assume, try to get back in the good graces of the people who want to hear craziness. Um, um, anyway, I'll save my Kevin McCarthy rant for another time. I know we're running long. I do 
want to say, um, uh, I feel terrible for the people in Louisiana, um, and Mississippi and in New York with all this, uh, hurricane Ida stuff. Um, you know, my heart goes out. It's been kind of amazing to see some of this stuff. Um, but if I can make a sort of a lighthearted point without trying to be, um, offensive to anybody who's really suffered in all of this. Um, there's some things I'd like to hear more about. First of all, it was confirmed that at least one person in the floodwaters in Louisiana was attacked by alligators. And, um, it just seems to me that if just as a matter of old fashioned American, uh, sort of, uh, give the people what they want, sensationalist news stuff. Um, we should hear more about floodwaters full of fricking alligators. I mean, that's just, that's, that's just good stuff. I mean, again, I don't want anyone to attack or anything like that, but like, that's the kind of thing that traditionally you would sell papers and why you wouldn't like hover over that story a little bit more, you know, the same media that goes crazy with shark attacks. Let's hear a bit, a little bit more about the alligators, you know, um, circling, circling the, you know, the TGI, TGI Fridays in, you know, Baton Rouge or whatever it is. And then similarly, and this is, you know, this is a point of personal privilege here. Um, I know I, I should have looked it up, but a couple of years ago, a guy actually did a full blown census of New York's rat population and it turned out to be smaller than we thought when I was growing up, there were, um, various estimates from there's one rat for each New Yorker to there are like 10 rats for each New Yorker. And you know, like one of the things my dad always used to say is like, okay, where, where's my rat? He wanted his rat. Um, sort of a dad joke thing but if you look at the footage of these subways being flooded in new york um never mind all these places in like central park having grown up in new york i can tell you there are a lot of rats in new york i don't know what the real number is i should have gone back and looked at this guy's data but um it is a very large number of rats and a significant number of them, including pizza rat live in the New York subways, particularly in these honeycomb things. They're like the layer just above the chuds. And, um, there's actually, you know, it's a, there's amazing science and history about, um, uh, you know, the ability of rats to flee, you know, to, to flee a scene before disaster. Like when there's a earthquake coming or a fire coming, you know, you often see them leaving, you know, leaving in mass. I remember during Hurricane Katrina, um, there were these horrifying stories about like whole uh, swarms, herds, troops, murders. I don't, what do you call a big group of rats? Um, colonies of rats taking to the trees and then hanging out on the roofs of people's houses, like so that you couldn't even see the shingles. Um, and my understanding, uh, I read this somewhere a while ago, but the phrase like rats fleeing a sinking ship, which apparently is a true phenomenon. You know, they get it. Um, it actually began as a phrase, something like uh, rats leaving a crashing house or a crumbling house or something like that. And the thinking of it was, is that the, the beams, a lot of houses, as you can imagine, weren't built up to sort of code in the 1300s. And there were ways to tell that they were about to just fall down. And rats could sense it and would flee the house right before it fell down. Um, and I think that's where the phrase actually comes from. But I'm, I'm, I'm open to correction on that. Um, anyway, I want to know what happened to all the rats in the subways. Did they all, at least with the subways that flooded, right? I mean, um, where did they go? Is there, you know, is there a Jamba Juice somewhere that is just filled to the rafters with rats riding out the floodwaters? Um, this is the kind of news coverage that I, uh, you know, I want. And, um, you know, and I know this is a little bit of a problem since I, you know, I'm co-founder of a media organization and I should put someone on rat patrol, um, duties, but, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why you should, um, become a paid member of the dispatch community, because if we could get the kind of resources that we would get from hitting our, our, our membership numbers, our membership targets in the next two years. I could get someone to just simply cover the rat beat. Um, I could get someone who could, you know, go 
amidst the alligators in the floodwaters. I could also maybe, you know, I, uh, John Podoritz just sent me a note saying that there's going to be a giant Game of Thrones fan convention in Vegas and later next year. Um, you know, you know, we could send me there to sort of do on the ground reporting, um, sort of William Shatner at a Star Trek convention style um, of, you know, these vital events. There's just, there's just really no limit to the number of things that we could do. Um, and again, we're doing great, but we really want to do better and we want to do better faster. And um, subscribing to the dispatch, you know, look, I, I am not a fan. I shouldn't say that. I am a fan of the New York Times podcast, The Daily. But as I've mentioned before, I really cannot stand the way Michael Barbero talks and interviews things. He sounds like he took a fistful of horse dewormer right before he went. And he is fighting all sorts of violent gastrointestinal imperatives while he is trying to conduct an interview. And so, like, you know, he'll be talking to someone and they'll say, and the interesting thing about the, the Social Security shortfall is that it's coming a lot sooner than we think. And he'll be going, he'll do these sort of audio punctuation marks and acknowledgments of what the person is saying to give emphasis or to signal that he's listening. And he'll make these sounds like, uh, mm, uh, and it, it sounds like he is holding back some terrible bow stewing and it drives me crazy listening to it and it really to the point of distraction um but i do think you know they they're they're pretty good at giving little summaries of various things um you know it, it really is in some ways a press release for the new york times which is fine they talk to their own reporters who then tell the world you know what their reporting is and that that's that's a service and that's fine but one of the things they're really good, good at when I listen to it with my sort of uh, businessman hat is uh, their ads um, are, for the most part, all about why you should subscribe to the New York Times, because the New York Times is what supports um, the podcast. And they pay for the podcast, the daily podcast, through subs you know, subscriptions to the Times. Well, that's the same thing with The Remnant and with AO and with you know, Chris Darwalt's uh, limited run series, uh, The Hangover, and of course, with, with the Dispatch podcast. If you could become a member, you help this podcast do more. I mean, I want to expand. I want to do cool things. Um, and becoming a member helps us do that, even if you don't want to read the Dispatch, even if you don't want to get the emails and all that kind of stuff or the newsletters, or if you don't want to go to the site. If you like this podcast, I mean, by all means, visit our sponsors. Um, but if you could become a member of the dispatch, that would be even better for us. Um, oh, and so on that note, you know, one of the things as we head into this next year um, is, you know, we have pretty aggressive plans for growth and marketing and, and, and benefits for members and all these kinds of things. And um, we're still kicking the tires on this idea. But as you know, um, we have this tradition on this podcast that sort of began as a, as a Jack Buck, Jack Butler shtick and then became an homage to Jack Butler, um, where the guest comes back on and says, no, you won't. This is a podcast. And we asked listeners if we should drop it. And, um, cause sometimes it's, it's, it's a bit of a hassle to ask some complete stranger and explain to them, you know, Oh, I, I need you to say this thing. Um, I tried to get Graham Wood to say it in Pashto. Um, but, um, uh, a listener pointed out that we don't do anything like that on um, uh, on the solo podcast, and it gives them. Uh, and he says, you know, maybe what you could do is have listeners uh, send audio files in saying, "No, you won't. This is a podcast." We like this idea. We're going to. We think we're going to do some version of this idea. We haven't quite figured it out yet. We're still kicking the tires because, like, uh, do you have the person identify themselves? What if they don't want to identify themselves? Um, what does the listener care about some rando listener they've never heard of who doesn't identify themselves? It's just a disembodied voice at that point. And so we're trying to figure out how like people could script these things, you know, how to have them send it in. But one thing we're pretty sure about is that whatever fantastic solution we have to this fantastic idea, um, it will be, uh, reserved for, um, uh, paid members of the dispatch community and you'll have to, and we, we can check that, but it'll be one of these very small, weird little perks. Um, and we think that there's probably a fun and funny way to do it. 
But um, if you have ideas about the way we should do it, uh, please uh, shoot us a note. All right. So um, with all that, um, I guess I'm done here. Um, I, again, feel like I um, have completely fallen short of what I'm supposed to do on this thing and uh, have a general sense of embarrassment for having talked for an hour by myself. Um, but it is what it is. And I got to go off to an editorial meeting and then we have the, our fantasy football draft at the dispatch. Um, and, uh, I got a lot of money riding on that thing. I mean, a lot. Um, so I'll let you know how all that turns out and I'll see you next time.